Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Geek Rant, episode 258. And now for the lawsuits. Recorded November 6, 2016, and brought to you by Element OP Productions. ElementOP.com. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the only place on the internet where geeks rant. Although, I, I may, I, I, I've had some reports. I might be wrong about that. There might be another website or two. But I'm not believing it. This is the one. This is the only place where geeks rant. I am your host, Mark, sometimes known as the Sultan of the Soapbox Cockerel. And joining me this week, um, uh, after a last-minute cancellation, is only uh, the uh, the the newcomer is the is going to be holding the show up. So Miles Wakeham is uh, is joining this week. Hey, Miles, how are you? I'm good, and I'm prepared to rant. Awesome. So uh, Seth sadly has had a technical failure that presents him, uh, prevents him from being on the show. Um, there's really nothing more I can say about it than that. I don't. I mean, it's not like he's lost his appendix or anything. It's it. It was a an equipment malfunction of some sort, and no, um, Justin Timberlake didn't pull his top off. Um, it was a different type of equipment malfunction. Uh, but he won't be joining us, uh, and we will miss him. But we'll soldier on without him. Uh, so here we go. Uh, we weren't here last week, as you know. Uh, probably you don't. Most of you are listening two or three weeks behind, and you won't even notice this. Uh, but we uh, we uh, didn't go last week just because Halloween was on Monday uh, this year, and apparently that means that you have to do Halloween things on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. I didn't I didn't get the memo, uh, but my my wife and kids planned multiple events that week, and frankly, I was just not having any of it. The good news is the Cowboys got to play uh, Sunday night, and I got to watch that, so that was good. So a bit of a correction there. Uh, last time we were together, I said that their record was 6-1, and one, when in fact they were only 5-1, and one, but that's okay. I've been proven right there now. It's 7-1, and one, so ha. Ah. So, Miles, did you do anything exciting for Halloween? Yeah, I drove across the desert. <laughs> I can't believe it. I, it was the, the only time that I had to come back from, I went to Southern California for the weekend, and the only time I could get back was on Halloween night. So here I was driving through Quartzsite and Blythe and all these places that, you know, no one normally would go to unless it was the middle of winter. And I'm driving through it thinking, man, I'm missing Halloween. So no, I really was, was a no-show on Halloween this year. And so my uh, uh, kids were invited to um, a neighbor's house where they have this uh, interesting sort of thing I've never heard of before. Um, they all get together at the like the clubhouse, the pool area. It's one of those subdivisions that has one of those. They have a party. They have a costume contest. They have pizza, all that. And then all the kids in one giant amorphous blob go house to house. So as a parent, that's kind of cool because you just open the door, throw buckets of candy out on the mob, and you're done. You don't have to sit on their front porch all night. You don't have to get up and go back and forth to the door all night. So I really thought that was kind of a, a cool idea. But because I live in, in a house entirely peopled by women, we showed up an hour and a half late and missed most of it. Uh, so our, our Halloween was a bit of a bust, too, just because girls. <laughs> Do you get a lot of people in your neighborhood for Halloween? So the neighborhood that I was in last year, was huge it was it was a rich people i've said this many times i couldn't afford to live there if i weren't renting a house there uh because the people there are are super rich like the guy on one side of me was a big fancy banker dude the, there was a guy on the other side who was a plastic surgeon there was you know one of those pharmaceutical smarmy sales rep guys there so it was, it was all super rich people and then me 
uh, renting the slum in the, you know, that I'm sure that's how they looked at me. Um, we'd, we'd come home and the kids were like, well, uh, Tommy and Jenny are going to veil for, for, uh, spring break. Why can't we, <laughs> we're going to the zoo, honey. That's where we're going for spring break. Um, but only on the afternoon cause we can't afford the full day ticket. Uh, but anyway, so, um, people there would like truck in from other places because the, the rich people lived there and, and they gave out good stuff. And so it was huge. Uh, we would go through 10 or 15 pounds of candy. Um, on an average night. Um, but this time, because we went to, we didn't even stick in our neighborhood. We went to somebody else. So we just put two big bowls of candy on the front porch, expecting the first kid to show up to, to empty both bowls into their bag. Um, cause that's what I would have done. Um, but when we came back, there was actually a whole bunch of candy left. So either the kids here are super honest or there weren't that many of them or both. So I don't really, I can't really speak for my neighborhood other than, uh, there was candy left over when we got home. I used to live in California many years ago, and uh, we lived in a neighborhood that was kind of up against the mountainside on in the north part of L.A. County. And our neighbor across the street was uh, the lady, I can't remember her name, she played Carol Brady in the Brady Bunch. Okay. And, you know, it was weird to have a neighbor like that. <laughs> but that was the type of neighborhood it was, and... Man, did we get attacked at Halloween. I mean, the street was just like this procession of kids just up and down, and everybody just got completely uh, annihilated with uh, Halloween visits. So it was fun. But now, you know, Scottsdale, Arizona is pretty quiet. We don't get many kids at all here. So I guess I probably didn't miss much driving across the desert. That was Florence Henderson, by the way. Uh, I I couldn't come up with it, so I had to Google it. That's right. That's right. <laughs> uh, so I, I just want to say the the reason that I've uh, titled this show and now for the lawsuits is that by the time this show airs, the American presidential debate will be over and the lawsuits will have begun. Uh, so Donald Trump is already uh, saying that he will sue if he loses, because clearly there's the only way he could lose is if there's uh, corruption and there's no way that the Clinton camp would settle for a loss. So unless it is a, you know, 98% to 2% landslide, if there's anything to contest, it will be. So I suspect by the time we're here again in, in seven days, uh, there will be multiple lawsuits, uh, alleging voter fraud. So, um, the, the deed will be done, but, uh, as they say, it's all, uh, it's all over, but the crying, the crying will be in full effect. That's my prediction. Yeah. What do you think, Miles? Right on. I tell you what, I am exhausted by this thing. You can't you can't walk away from a TV set for an hour without some explosive thing happening every five minutes. It's like you know, really, I, I'm I, okay. I'm done with it. I voted by mail. I've done, finished. You know, tell me the result. I don't want to go through this experience anymore. I'm done. I'm over it. I'm predicting that this will be record turnout uh, because I know at least here in Georgia. Uh, my my wife works at a, a school run by our church, and our church is also a polling place. And so they've been early voting uh, across the street from where uh, my wife works. Uh, so they, they opened five days, so Monday through Friday last week, and they were a satellite space. The, the, the county wasn't intending to use all of them. They had only opened like three early voting places. Then they went ahead and called in all the satellite spaces uh, that they could. Um, and all last week, there were three and four hour lines to vote. 
Uh, so this is this is an uh, this is kind of unprecedented, at least in in my lifetime. Uh, the the most recent uh, thing I've heard was that twenty uh, percent of Georgians have already voted. Um, wow. And I mean, twenty percent is like a typical turnout. Uh, so if twenty percent have early voted, I, I'm thinking we may have you know some of the biggest uh, voter turnout we've ever seen. And as and whatever else you might say about this election, that is a good thing. Yeah. Well, we have something in common. I mean, both Georgia and Arizona, we're both swing states all of a sudden. Who right. saw that coming? <laughs> um, and we've got the same problem. We have two, three-hour-long waits to vote, and even on early voting, it's that long at the moment. Um, we have a very, very large Hispanic population in, in Phoenix, so they're all now actively engaged in the voting process, where in the past they probably weren't. Uh, they even passed a – well, they tried to – get a law that well it's kind of this weird thing going on through the supreme court in the last couple of days here they um had this setup where they got uh, initially got some no they were disallowed the approval for community organizers to go out to neighborhoods and collect voting ballots and deliver them to the polling stations on behalf of the voters and that was stopped and then they appealed and they actually got it passed for about I don't know, maybe four hours before the Supreme Court stepped in and goes, no, you can't do that. And the theory was that the uh, these organizers would go into predominantly um, either Native American or Hispanic populations and collect all the voting rolls and bring them to the polling stations because they didn't expect a uh, high turnout of those groups at the lines. Because let's face it, who wants to wait three hours in line to vote? I mean, these people have got jobs. They're going to feed their family. They don't want to stand for three hours in line. Right. And so but, what's going to happen is a guy like me um, who works a typical nine to five job uh, is not going to be able to early vote or, or vote early in the day because the polls open at seven and it, it, I have to be in traffic by seven to get to work on time. You know, so I'm not going to be able to go in the morning. So I'm going to get off work at, at five. I'm going to fight traffic. I'll probably leave it for even. I'll fight traffic for an hour and a half to two hours to get to my polling place. I will get there at six. There will be a three-hour line. So at seven, they will close the doors and therefore, quote-unquote, disenfranchise a large number of people standing out there. And that will be lawsuit number one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that's, I, I voted by mail. I, I just saw this coming and I said, no, nah, here you go. Stick a stamp on it. I'm done. Yeah, and I didn't wait late to vote. You know, I'm voting on voting day. So it's uh, I'm going to be accused of, of being a slacker if I don't get to vote. But the fact is, you know, uh, at any point that I could have voted early, it would have been take a half a day off of work to do so. Um, you know, I, I have never been a big uh, believer in uh, making Election Day a national holiday. This may change my mind. I mean, if yeah. we could get... 80%, 90% of, of eligible voters voting, then it would be worthwhile to do it if that's what it would take. Because you'd have to have many more polling places and you'd have to have um, many, uh, be, be able to process many more people. And you can't do that without lots more volunteers and you've got to be able to disperse the crowds. Well, you can only do that if a lot of places where people work are closed down uh, and people are able to get off work. So I get the idea of the national holiday. But in a typical American election with 60% of eligible voters voting or less, it just hasn't made sense. Maybe this election will be enough to actually change some some policy. 
yeah. regardless you know of what, who's elected. You know what's amusing though? Have you heard all these new this news about people who have been receiving text messages like you don't have to stand in line to vote. Respond to this text with one for for right. Trump and two for Hillary. It's like really people aren't that gullible are they i guess yes. maybe they yes, must they are. be <laughs> oh, gosh <laughs> so uh, while i am as unexcited as possible i i am um gut-wrenchingly disgusted at the the choices we have for president i am excited about the excitement over uh politics once again that that people are actually taking um you know, uh, uh, taking an interest and caring. And if, if we have to have the choice between Mothra and Godzilla for that to happen, maybe it's a worthwhile thing. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. <laughs> I don't know, though. I'm still so tired by this right now. I'll be so happy when this is over. Uh, so we'll see what happens. I also expect uh, third-party candidates and write-ins to be at record high. Yeah. yeah. There, yeah. Uh, there's a good chance Mickey Mouse is going to have 10% of the vote. Yeah, I heard Elmo's running pretty high in the polls right yeah, now. Yeah, good stuff. <laughs> um, uh, so you are uh, going to be traveling to something that I have always been interested in uh, coming up in, in a little bit. The, the largest, I'm guessing it's still the largest, uh, Linux Expo on the planet scale. Um, have, have you been there before? No, I've never been. I, I got an email recently just, to, you know, I think it was a call for papers or something like that. And I... Every time, every year that scale has been on in the past, it was always, I think, towards the end of January or early February, right at a time that just for some reason was never convenient. Um, and I just realized when I looked at this email, they said it was in March. I thought, you know what? I can make that. And it's down at LAX at, uh, at the airport in uh, Southern California. You know, it's about a six-hour drive for me. I'll do it. It's worth it. It's very cheap to go, and it's uh, it's something I've never done before. I've actually... I hate to admit it, but I've never actually been to a Linux uh, convention before. Um, I, so this is going to be a first. I was invited to speak at the last two uh, scales, and and that's not prestigious. They send out millions of uh, calls for presentations. Um, but both times, it's been, you know, for me, it's literally the other side of the country. Uh, it's, you know, taking time off of work. It's It's expensive to get there. Then it's the hotel. So it's just, it's not something that has worked out for me. Uh, there is a Linux uh, expo. Uh, uh, it's either in Atlanta or North Carolina. It's it's within you know a couple of hours for me. But that's always been you know calendar wise something I've never been. I've been to a couple of you know um, ten guys in a hotel room uh, <laughs> expos, but I've never been to a big one like that. And I would like to go, even though I'm sort of Linux adjacent. Uh, I would still be interested in going. Yeah, there's always some celebrities in the Linux community that show up for these things. Like you'll get uh, the guy from Canonical, Mark, whatever his name is, um, and and you know that's it. Thank you, Mark Shuttleworth. And then sometimes Linus will turn up. I mean, who knows? I, I'm just going to, but I'll just be happy to go there and just feel like I'm part of a clan. Yeah, <laughs> it's your tribe. It's your people. Yeah, yeah. So looking forward to that. So I had uh, something, I learned something this week uh, because of uh, of something else. So I'm going to tie two things together. You don't care about this, none of you. So if, feel free to skip forward uh, five minutes or so. But this is important to me, so I'm going to talk about it. For the first time in my married career, and certainly uh, since I had children, I now have a space that's all my own. I have a man cave. And I've talked about it before. I've uh, been, I'm on a quest to build the the highest quality, lowest cost man cave possible. 
Uh, I have found in my own life that the best way to make sure something gets done uh, after a move, for example, is to host an event. So this Saturday, I uh, hosted a party in the man cave, which means I had to get the man cave ready. Not finished. It'll never be finished. Like on my, my deathbed, I'll be thinking, there's one other thing I could do with that wall over there. But um, yeah, I had to get it ready enough. So I hosted uh, um, about 10 guys. Uh, actually, not that many showed up. But anyway, I invited about 10 guys over. We had some pizza and we watched some football and we played uh, some poker and some foosball. And it was just, um, you know, just an, uh, an exciting for me time to have this space that I could share with us. I've always loved hosting. Um, and my plan is at some point to uh, put like a combination lock on the back door and just tell my guys, come on over, whether I'm here or not. You know, actually, one of my what, what I'm thinking I'm going to do is have like a monthly um, last Friday of the month thing down in the man cave. And if you can come, come. And if I can't come, that's fine, too. You know, it'll be people I trust. And I'll also have a lock to the door that goes into the rest of the house just to be safe. Um, so on those days, they'll have to pee outside because we don't have any uh, uh, water down there. But anyway, uh, it's just something I want to do. Uh, so I really enjoyed it. I had a good time, um, and it was it was a manly sort of event. But at the end of the the night, uh, it was like one o'clock in the morning, and most guys were leaving. But I was it was a time change night, so I had an extra hour. Um, so a friend of mine had never seen the Princess Bride, and at that point, it was either end our friendship or introduce him to the Princess Bride because I just don't need that kind of negativity in my life. So I watched the Princess Bride starting at like it was twelve thirty or one o'clock. Uh, Saturday night, and I, I watched it on the seven foot screen in the man cave. I have seen that movie dozens, maybe even triple digits. I've seen that movie many, many times, um, and I noticed something because I've only ever seen it on a small screen. Like the biggest screen I've ever seen it on was like a forty two inch, you know, uh, across the room. But on the seven foot screen, sitting relatively close to it, I saw something I've never seen before. In the scene where uh, Count Rugen and Indigo have their battle, Rugen is you know sitting on the corner of the table saying, you've been chasing me your whole life, only to lose now. That's terrible. How marvelous. Um, in that scene, um, Carrie Elwes and Christopher Guest are actually uh, making frost with their breath as they speak. It's so cold in that castle that they're, you know, they're blowing smoke, so to speak. I have never noticed that before. I've never been on, a, on an image that big. So this movie was made new to me, at least in a small sense, because I saw it in a large format for the first, first time. And, and I'm wondering if any of our listeners have ever noticed that as well. Go back and look at it. You may have to get up close to it or whatever. But they, when they speak, they are actually making you know, frost as they speak because the castle they're in is that cold, which makes you- uh, you know, point number two, I don't ever want to live in a castle. <laughs> do you know where it was recorded or where it was filmed it was uh it was it was somewhere in the british isles um and i, I should know this i i just recently read a book uh uh carrie was memoir about that but one of the things they commented on was it was always very cold and like there's a lot of other things where you can see like buttercup is shivering in her uh her little dress uh and the, there's a there's a particular scene where rugen and um Humperdinck are on horseback and apparently a, a particularly brisk wind comes by and you can see Christopher Guest grimace as the the breeze hits him so it's it's clearly very cold and they're dressed in not super cold but uh weather attire but not warm weather attire either they're you know tights and whatever so I, I I had known that it was cold but I didn't realize that in the in the castle it was that frigid so it was a it was an exciting 
little revelation. Exciting is not the right word. It was an interesting little revelation for me. That's so cool. <laughs> and, you know, it takes 1080p, uh, well, it was 720p. It, it takes high def at large scale to see that, or at least it did for me. And in this day of, you know, uh, enhanced Blu-ray, I would never have seen that watching it on the VHS tape I originally bought the movie on. And there you have your justification to your wife for buying that new 4K TV. <laughs> yeah, right there. <laughs> what, else, what else might I discover? Uh, who knows? Exactly. <laughs> Uh, and then this last thing is is a sort of a transition into the news. Uh, Miles is uh, he would be more able to take advantage of this than I because in Atlanta um, there are trees and there are are hills, neither of which are good for solar roofs. But Elon Musk thinks that we need solar roofs. I think Elon Musk is kind of my personal hero, but then I don't know. I the Elon Musk and Tesla have done so many amazing things and. In terms of just breaking, what do they call that? Disruptive technology. Well, I call and, it a nutbag, but in his yeah. case, he's a nutbag that things seem to pay off for. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I I've never met anybody like that in my life. Everybody I know who had some crazy idea fell flat on their face. So <laughs> to send a message to everybody else, like, don't do that. But in comes this guy from South Africa, and he's like. Uh, we can change, you know, banking, so he creates PayPal. Or we can change space flight, so he creates SpaceX. We can ch- change motor vehicles and cars, so he ch- creates Tesla. Um, and then his cousin or cousins started Solar City, the uh, uh, solar company, and uh, they were out sticking solar panels on people's roofs. And somehow he must have just said, well, let's keep it all in the family. We'll make you part of Tesla. And oh, while you're at it, I'm going to reinvent solar panels. To make them did. look like regular, like slate clay tiles. They look good, which is yeah, they do. is not the case for any solar panel ever. No, no, I, I'm, I'm surprised. And, and it, it comes at a perfect time for me because we have to re-roof. Our house was built in 1991. And it's time for a new roof. I mean, we had some uh, the odd leak here, there, here and there, uh, maybe a year or so ago. And I had one of one of our uh, contractor guys up there patching the the I don't, all that stuff that they do on roofs. I'm not good on roofs. He's up there fixing the thing, and he keeps telling me, you know, what well, is time for a new roof. So I said, yeah, but here's the thing: I want to do solar at some point, but. I can't do solar until I've done the roof, so I need, you know, just let's see if we can just get a year or so out of it. Meanwhile, out the back of our house, if I go out the backyard and I look at my neighbor to the back, they've just gone and spent some enormous amount of money putting solar panels on their their, uh, roof. And I don't know, It's everyone wants to be all positive and everything about the eco thing about solar panels, but let's face it, people, it looks ugly. Mm-hmm. They, those panels look so ugly, and, uh, you know, there has to be a better way, and I guess Musk worked it out. And he just happens to have a solar panel colour that matches exactly to the terracotta colour of my roof tiles. So thanks, Elon. Good job, buddy. <laughs> And thank God I didn't do anything six months ago, so I really would have been annoyed. Yeah, so their their press says that it costs less than a conventional roof once you figure in the, the savings. So what I read that to mean is it's 16 times as much as a regular roof, and we hope over the 40 years of that the tiles are expected to last, you'll recoup your money. Yeah, yeah. 
I'm, I'm working on the basis that I have to put a combined cost of a new roof plus solar panel together, uh, solar uh, panels, and that, I mean, that's expensive. But if he's doing it all in one and he can do it cheaper than the combined cost of the two for me, um, I'll take it. I'll go with that. That's going to save some money. Yeah, at so, my particular house, I don't get enough direct sunlight to run solar-powered landscape lights. You know, those little things with the solar cell. I, mm-hmm. I don't get enough light to power those. So it's not going to be useful for me unless I'm willing to clear-cut my acreage, which I'm not. I mean, one of the reasons I bought it was because it's a wooded lot and I like it. But when you live in the desert, or like I used to back in Texas, um, this is not quite no-brainer territory, but getting there. Yeah, yeah. The only thing is that I want to put a – this is a personal goal of mine. I want to be 100% off the grid. I don't want to be grid-tied. I don't want to be selling power back to the power company. I want to be 100% independent. Um, that doesn't mean that I want to go and live somewhere you know, out of the city and all that sort of thing. I want to be in the city, in the middle of the city, 100% off the grid. And it's just, it's just my – I don't know, tinfoil hat independent nature that I just don't want to find that the power company realize, hey, we've only got half of the number of customers. Let's just double the, the bills for them to keep the, the revenue flowing. We're still going to pay for that nuclear reactor somehow. Uh, and that's a pretty traditional business model we have with our power company here in Arizona. Yeah, where I'm living now, it's the first time I've ever been on a co-op. And so it's an organization whose purpose isn't net profit. And I'm paying less for energy than I've ever paid. Uh, and you know, if you can take that to the, the local level, right? So if you, if you have enough solar energy to run your house plus a little, you know, that you can often sell back, but you know, what, what I'm envisioning is, you know, a neighborhood of people when a, a contractor comes in and puts these on all the house and they set up their own substation and now you can, you know, use using that um, the house uh, power, you could actually run the lights at the, uh, on the street lights and, and at the pool and, and all the stuff that a, that a residential neighborhood needs. And you could have an entire area uh, using the, the surplus power of the, its houses in a fully you know, sort of democratic um, uh, way and be not only off the grid individually, but as an entire area. And then that grows and grows. And eventually, you know, we are harnessing that giant burning ball of gas uh, above us for something other than you know heat in the in the in the the car that burns your hands yeah yeah well you know one of the things that we've been talking about the last few shows was that we i I took the uh, effort to go cord cutting extreme uh, a few weeks back about a month back now and so you know my tv show watching habits have changed a little bit because i'm focusing more on shows i get over the air and so I discovered watching This Old House again, which I hadn't seen for years. Um, and I just was interested because the one of the recent episodes, they did this this show about um, uh, air conditioning and heating outlets, the, uh, the little grill square outlet. There's mm-hmm. a name for them. I don't know what it's called. But some guy who was an ex-military um, uh, rocket scientist, I guess, uh, it, I mean, literally worked on the... Uh, uh, you know, firing missiles against missiles type thing. Uh, Star Wars spa- Defense Initiative. Thank you. That's it. In uh, in his spare time, he worked out that if he created those event those uh, vents, the outlet vents for air conditioning, and he put a motorized uh, system in there with an RF receiver that could 
close the, the grates uh, remotely. And then in each room where the uh, air flows out in the house, he puts a, a little sort of transponder that actually replaces a double uh, power outlet. So it's kind of built into the wall or just looks like it's part of the wall. But what this thing would do is it, it actually sends back uh, a signal to a central home a controller and every room in the house is registered. It'll send back the humidity, the temperature, and all the details about each individual room. And the controller then sends a signal to the, um, the air conditioner outlet to tell it to close or open based on what the room's required temperature level should be. So all of a sudden, you dial in what you like the temperature to be, and it takes care of it for you. And as a result, hopefully, reduces your power bill because you're not pumping a whole lot of cold air into a room that nobody's in at three in the morning when it doesn't make any sense to do so. Um, yeah, so I invented a system in my brain uh, several years ago uh, that that exact same system, a motorized thing, uh, only mine was different in that there was a thermostat in each room so that each person could have whatever they want. And as long as any vent is open, the the unit is running. And when all vents are closed, the unit goes off. And so anybody who knows anything about that knows when you close off a vent, it sends more air to another. So you get more efficient. And eventually, if, if nine out of 10 vents are closed, that 10th one is going to be blowing enough air to, to really quickly, quickly change the temperature to what you need it to be. So I mm -hmm. went so far as to do a patent search and found what you're talking about. And so my idea had already been done, but as far as I know, it's never been in production. There's a, there's a patent out there. Uh, so I couldn't uh, capitalize on my idea because it wasn't my idea, it turns out. Um, but I've, I've never seen any of these used in anger and uh, th there has to be a reason for it. There's, it's either not cost effective or it turns out that, uh, that you don't save anything by, by running the unit. Cause at some point, all the, the, the units just end up being on all the time because this room gets cool and that room gets hot or something. There's gotta be some reason why they're, they're not around. Cause that, that was like 15 years ago that I did the patent search. Right. Well, I, uh, the only thing I, I don't remember the name of this product, but I do remember they said the cost of it for an average four bedroom home, which is a fairly large home, uh, was about $3,000 to outfit or retrofit the house with this technology. Um, to put that in perspective with Arizona's cooling costs during summer, uh, an average month's power bill for us in, say, August is about $850. So... If you're dealing with five months of that, it's very, very easy to justify spending that money to maybe get a 25% saving on the, on the overall cost of power. And it, it all ties back to making a, a house the most efficient power-consuming uh, system you possibly can before you do the solar thing and then sizing the solar thing according to that need. So I'm... Really, really happy to hear about what Musk has come out with on his solar roof. I think it's a great solution for what I want, but I still have a bit more work to do to be a bit more efficient on my use of solar. But um, everywhere you look, there's, it seems like a positive step forward for this stuff. Yeah, it, and something I've opined about uh, before on this show is that the current best uh, – efficiency of solar cells in in regular use i'm not talking about in a lab is about 25 percent so 75 percent of the energy is wasted as either reflected light or absorbed as heat so we we still have a long way to go before solar is viable but 
you know, a decade ago, that 25% was at about 7%. So we've seen a, a, an almost fourfold increase in the last 10 years. And I don't know if we can break it. I don't know if the technology exists to get 100% efficient, but if we could just double to 50%, that would, that would literally change the planet. And I'm not a tree hugger, but I'm all about doing things as efficiently as possible. And while I don't think that uh, burning fossil fuels is going to bring on the next uh, ice age, I do think that we shouldn't do it if we don't have to. Plain well, and simple. I, yeah, I, I'm, a, I'm a money guy with this stuff. Exactly. <laughs> it's going to save me this sort of money. I'm all in. I mean, if I can have a, a highly efficient, you know, I, I complain that I don't get much sunlight on my car. I mean, on my house. I do on my car when I'm parked out in the parking lot in the hot Georgia sun. Uh, so if I could use that energy to fuel my commute, why wouldn't I? Uh, so again, it's not about saving the planet. It's just, it's about being a, a reasonable steward of what you're given. And so I would love to see that technology improve to the point where, I mean, the, there's enough heat generated both in the planet geothermally and uh, external to the planet in terms of, of solar energy that we could meet all of our needs if we just knew how to harness it. But not only could we meet all of our needs, we could far exceed our uh, our needs if we could just find a way to harness that energy. Yeah. Absolutely. Let's build a Dyson sphere. Let's do that. <laughs> um, okay, so that was an interesting... Uh, I, I think cost is going to be an issue. I think efficiency is going to be an issue. And I think reliability is going to be an issue. But the more suckers... I mean, the more early uh, uh, adopters who buy this the more those problems get worked out and the cheaper it is for me 10 years from now when it when I finally get around to doing it. Yep, yep. I'm going to delay my purchase until I've gotten everything as efficient as I can inside the house and then I'll jump and dive in and by then hopefully they've got the bugs worked out and it won't be so bad. Yeah, and again, this is, this is not news. Long-time listeners will know that I think the, the, uh, that energy is the next thing to be tackled, that it's not going to be um, you know, people talk about uh, going to space. Well, the reason we don't go to space is it takes so much energy to get there. Uh, you know, we talk about uh, all these problems that we need to solve, like fresh water, right? The reason we don't desalinate the oceans is because it takes so much energy to do it. If we can solve the energy puzzle, the Star Trek world becomes a reality, right? We 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 could, you know, we could travel faster than light because, well, actually. Probably not, but we could come. We could travel way faster than we do because energy is the problem, and there's tons of energy out there. We we don't know how to you know co- uh, combine helium atoms and make um, hydrogen or hydrogen hydrogen atoms and make helium the way the sun does. But there's lots of suns out there, and they're all doing it. So it's it's a thing that happens. We just don't know how to do it. And, and you know, once we can figure out the way to fix the the energy problem, all of our other problems go away. There's no such thing as famines when there's no issue with transporting uh, food from the place who does have it to the place that doesn't have it. You know, it's all about energy. And I think that has been ignored or, or certainly downplayed for decades longer than it should have been. Yep, right on. I mean, uh, Alessandro, I think that's right, Volta, figured out that if you stack different metals together, uh, you could get a charge from it. And Tesla's run on that same technology. We, we have not improved in 300 years. We've got more efficient metals, but we're just still just stacking metals together. <laughs> it's it's kind of crazy that we're, we're cavemen banging rocks on, on the floor when it comes to energy. But it's good enough, so we're okay with it. 
Yeah, yeah. We enter a new age, I hope. All right, so that was an unexpected rant. That rant was free. No extra charge for that rant. Um, so I, I, we want to move on now to a couple of mini rants from our listeners, what they have to say. Uh, and Mark, not me, another Mark, uh, listening to episode 256, thinks that I have may have discovered proof of alternate realities. He says, I just heard uh, episode 256, look up the Mandela effect and the Berenstein Bears made popular by Mr. Robot regarding my discussion of the Atari 1600. So the Mandela effect um, is, uh, I, I, uh, I, I can't remember who it is, a popular blogger said, I thought that Nelson Mandela died in prison uh, in the 80s. And and turns out millions of other people, or thousands at least, enough that it got people's attention, said, yeah, I thought that was true too. And then the Berenstain Bears, B-E-R-E-N-S-T-A-I-N, that's the book, Berenstain Bears. But a whole bunch of people said, no, I was pretty sure when I was a kid it was the Berenstain Bears. Um, and so some people, uh, have smart people with too much time on their hands, said, they're, wait, you're both right. Um, the, these are proof of, of parallel universes. And apparently there are times when people either pop out of one universe into another or artifacts pop out of one universe into another. And so Mark thinks that my Atari 1600 may have been a thing in an alternate reality. And at some point in my life, I popped into this reality where it was only the Atari six, uh, 2600. So there you go. There's your X files, uh, theory for the night. <laughs> okay. Wow, that Mark, I tell you what, I want to sit down and have a cup of coffee with him one day. <laughs> and and it's <laughs> That's amazing. I mean, there, there's actual physics. People have, have done the math uh, to, quote, unquote, prove that this is a possibility. Um, you know, one of the current per, uh, pervading theories right now, no, pervading is not the words. One of the uh, uh, currently available theories about uh, the whole quantum physics thing is that every decision made by every entity um, you know, be it, uh, int intelligent or, or, uh, beast mode, uh, whether you turned left or turned right, or, or whether you scratched your nose with your left hand or your right hand, every one of those creates a, a different, uh, universe. It spawns a new existence of the universe within the same 3d space. So it's not a, not a multiverse that exists in another uh, space, but within the same 3d space so that there's all of these converging uh, trillions upon trillions of different realities that exist within the same 3D space, and apparently there are times when they collide. So again, there's math that backs this up, but as my English teacher in high school said, figures don't lie, but liars can figure. <laughs> Very good. Uh, which reminded me of uh, John Scalzi, I think it was Scalzi, the Old Man's War series, uh, it was just sort of a throwaway paragraph. He never developed it, or at least not in the books I read. Maybe it came out later. Was uh, they had invented a faster than light travel device, and the way they did it was by popping out of our reality into another reality. And once you've done the trick of popping out of one reality into another, where you pop back in is not really an issue. So you can travel anywhere instantly because you're just sort of resetting the X and Y and Z coordinates on your plane. And because there are billions and trillions of possible universes, the odds are the one that you popped out of is pretty much identical to the one that you popped into. So you, you never notice it. You see it as travel, but really you're exchanging realities. That's a neat thought that turns out now there's math to back up. Who knew? Doctor Who did. <laughs> it's a wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey 
thing. There you go. <laughs> uh, and then Tim uh, says, I've got Miles' name all wrong. Um, he says, firstly, here's a link to the film Seth was looking for. So it's a link called The Thinking Machine. I don't remember when Seth was looking for that. We'll hold that for next week and see if he remembers it. Uh, but he says, lastly, a correction. Uh, while you may, of course, call Miles anything you like, you definitely should not call him the coin master. The proper term is master of the coin, which is a reference to reference to the king's chief financial advisor in Game of Thrones lore. Evident, evidently, you aren't a Game of Thrones viewer, and to that I say, what's wrong with you, man? <laughs> I'm envious as well because you've got six seasons of fantastic television to look forward to. Thanks for the show, guys. Tim. So uh, I, I apologize, Miles. Apparently, I was uh, incorrectly uh, monikerizing you. You're not the, the coin master. You are the master of the coin. Oh, okay. Well, I, you know, I'm going to plead guilty on this because I'm not a Game of Thrones watcher. So I've got, obviously, a lot of catch-up to do as well here. But, I, I, you know, my weakness is probably more Lord of the Rings. So, <laughs> you know, guilty. Um, but as but as far as that goes, I'll, I'll go with that. Master of the coin sounds fine to me. <laughs> whatever works, right? Yeah, whatever so works. <laughs> I have never seen a single episode of Game of, Game of Thrones um, at all, and the reasons are fairly simple. Uh, the first is I don't have HBO. I've never had HBO. Well, that's not true that I've never had HBO. I had HBO for a while in the '90s, and found I never watched it, and I was paying you know twenty whatever. Uh, dollars a month for something I never watched. So I canceled it and never missed it. And so HBO uh, Game of Thrones is an HBO thing. I didn't get it. So it wasn't until three years later that it came to Netflix that I even had access to it. And by then, I just wasn't interested. And and I hear people talk about it now. And basically, my understanding, this is a um, a total outsider's view. But from listening to you fans talk, here's what I know about Game of Thrones. There's blood and there's boobs and everybody you love dies. Um, no sale. Sorry, that just doesn't interest me. Yeah, that's what I've heard. Actually, okay, I will say this. I tried watching the first episode. I got maybe 20 minutes in and discovered blood and boobs and said, really? And then just stopped. <laughs> and I guess maybe I just didn't give it enough time or I'm going to get all the hate mail on this, I know. Yeah. Uh, I just didn't get it, give it enough of a chance, but I don't know. There's so many. It's it isn't. Do you? I don't know. Maybe this is me. But that whole kind of um, Lord of the Rings, Dungeons and Dragons vibe. You know that whole medieval Sir Lancelot, whatever you want to call it, that sort of thing. It just after a while, you just feel like it's been done to death. I mean, there's been so many versions of the same medieval story with a different title and a different set of actors and a different theme and after a while they all seem to blur into the same thing and i understand that if maybe maybe it's an age thing maybe if you're a millennial or you're you're watching these sorts of shows for the first time and the and the first one you encounter is game of thrones it's a big wow factor because this is new and it's it's vibrant and it's it's relevant and it works and that's great but, I mean, I grew up watching, uh, you know, Sir Lancelot and, and King Arthur and then Dungeons and Dragons and Lord of the Rings and, and The Hobbit and all of these things one after the other. And, and it's really hard to find a place to slot Game of Thrones in with that yeah. sort of a timeline for me. 
You know, I've said many times, and I'm going to get hate mail about this, I, I just, fantasy isn't my thing. And I recognize that fantasy and sci-fi are exactly the same thing. Only instead of a dragon, it's a spaceship. Instead of a magic spell, it's a laser beam. Instead of a sword, it's, uh, uh, you know, a, a lightsaber. I, I get that they're, it's all the same tropes and all the same characters. I get that. But one appeals to me and the other doesn't. And fantasy, by its nature, is a dirty universe. Um, you know, the, the technology is, you know, it's, it's grubby, it's dirty, it's, 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 it's medieval, right? Uh, so Mm -hmm. I, I, that just doesn't appeal to me. I like the clean universe that is promised to me in sci-fi and that maybe that's all there is to it. But like you said, you know, we grew up in a really golden age for fantasy. Um, and I'm not saying that the stuff today isn't as good, but you know, when you've seen the, uh, um, 1980s Excalibur, which was not a great movie, by the way. Right. But when you're a kid and you see that amazing armor, <sighs> pardon my sneeze, that amazing, the practical effects that they did there, that makes an impression on you. And you're willing to forgive the fact that it's not a very good movie. I just rewatched it recently and I had to struggle to get through it. In fact, now that I think about it, I don't think I did get through it. I think I turned it off because it's not a good movie. And I was just killing my childhood with every moment that I watched. So maybe you're going to be like that with Game of Thrones, millennial. Uh, but then again, there's you know there's Xers and even Boomers who like it, and it's just uh, you know I'm a I'm a big fan of boobs, but um, you know I'm not a big fan of blood and death, and I don't want to get invested in a character that I know is going to die. It, just the way I work. Yeah, I remember that. I remember Excalibur when in the eighties. I, I had exactly the same reaction to you. I thought at the time, "Wow, this is amazing!" And it was because I think because John Borman did such a beautiful do- job in directing, and and uh, the locations and the quality of the the cinematography was just over the top. It was a visual and, feast. Yeah, it was absolutely amazing. And you're right, the armor, um, it was just unbelievable. And uh, although the story kind of, it, it felt a bit dry, it didn't kind of connect naturally, but you could get over that because at the time there was nothing else like it. So you watched that and went, wow, this is amazing. Um, and you're right, it sets, a, it sets a tone going forward. So then when you look at all the Peter Jackson work on Lord of the Rings and so on, which is really over the top, uh, who did, you know, I think a remarkable job um, paying tribute to the original work of that, then, okay, that does improve upon what came before it. But then when you add Game of Thrones into the mix, and it's, I'm not saying it doesn't improve upon what came before it, but, man, they had a big act to follow. They mm-hmm. had to follow The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. It's not, it's, it's unless it's, a, you know, another leap forward from there, it, it's just, it just doesn't work for me. And that's kind of where I sort of said, eh, I'll pass. So as long as I'm uh, uh, alienating listeners, I'll go ahead and say this too. <laughs> Just this week, I rewatched uh, Highlander and really didn't enjoy it. Doesn't hold up. I'm sorry. Right. No, you're it right. Was it doesn't. Childhood favorite. Loved it. Saw it many times. The way we tell stories has changed. The expectation of what a movie is has changed. And with the exception of the amazing soundtrack by Queen, Nothing about that movie holds up. It just doesn't. Um, the The acting is, while it was good for its time, well, okay, it was okay for its time. Uh, 
uh christopher lambert was good he was kind of the only one um but while the the acting is is uh is was doesn't hold up the 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 visuals don't hold up the just the expectation of do characters act like this in real life we have changed what we expect there was much more suspension of disbelief in the 80s than there is now and as much as i'm not a fan of remaking things you know see my review of the most recent ghostbusters movie i really think this is a story that could be retold in the mid 20 teens brilliantly uh if it was handled well there's so much meat left on that bone that it could be done really well and you could do a total uh reimagining of it and it doesn't have to be the same story you know but it could be a very similar story uh using the the bones of it and 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 really sinking your teeth into it and you know like i i posted on facebook um sort of just how would you recast it um and so i I thought uh, ramirez uh, would be uh, Russell Crowe, but not the the full of life uh, Ramirez that we saw with uh, you know in in the Highland, but a grizzled, tired. I'm just ready to die uh, because I've been around for two thousand years and I've seen the worst humanity has to offer. Um, Ramirez, I think that could be interesting. Um, the 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 Kurgan. How about Idris Elba? Um, wow! Yeah, as the Kurgan, and again, the this elite warrior. Uh, so the Kurgan was crude and crass, and Idris Elba always comes comes off as uh, sort of refined. But why couldn't the Kurgan be refined over the years and be that sort of stately guy, but still bloodthirsty and and just sick of humanity and just ready to kill them all? That was sort of the the Kurgan's thing. He didn't care what the collateral damage was because he'd been around so long. He knew that all humans are just trash eventually, anyway, right? And how about maybe Charlie Hunnam, uh, who you may, uh, again, Game of Thrones, I'm pretty sure he was in that, but I know him uh, from Pacific Rim, that uh, sort of enigmatic, bewildered, I'm not really sure um, how to, to deal with this, but I'm going to get through, you know, I think he would be a good McLeod. Um, and so you, you reimagine it, you don't remake it. Um, and I think it could be re- really interesting. Did you ever see a movie in the 80s called Dune? Oh, yeah, absolutely. What did you think of that? Uh, I thought it was two and a half hours too long, um, and it was an acid trip, but I watched it more than once. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I fell in the same trap with that one. I thought the story was, well, I mean, obviously the story was great because of the books and so on, but the um, I was always thinking there's a movie they could remake in 2016. Yeah, it's that's a, that's a story so big that it would probably be better as like a Netflix series take 13 mm-hmm. hours to tell that story instead of uh three and we yeah. have that ability now we there are new tools at your disposal right so like uh you know daredevil that i love so much on netflix was a story too big to make a movie out of ask ben affleck uh if you can make a two-hour movie out of that one um you know rick in the chat room says they've been trying to remake dune they've been trying to remake dune i mean the the one that we saw in the 80s was a remake sort of of sorts of one that that sort of got shot in the 70s uh, but again, it's it's a big story, um, and it's hard to tell big stories in two-hour blockbuster segments. And I think we've moved beyond as a society that we don't have to be limited to the two and a half, two-hour, two-and-a-half-hour blockbuster anymore. We can take 15 hours to tell a story, and we can release it direct to the audience on Amazon Prime or on, on Netflix. And I think that's where you go with this sort of stuff, frankly. Yeah. yeah. Stop being mired in the way things have always done just because that's the way they've always been done. But that's difficult. That's difficult for everybody. You know, the, the recording industry is dying. 
because they they refuse to embrace the new. The cable, the I mean, the te- cable television is dying because they refuse to embrace the new. Uh, it's a thing. Yeah, but there, there are some uh, examples of really interesting new shows that are based on extremely um, vibrant new stories. Have you seen Westworld? I no, again, don't have HBO. Ah, uh, okay. Westworld premise is amazing. Um, you know, it's the whole idea of and it's not new. It's not new, no. I mean, it's it's kind of a it's a bit of the Matrix mixed with well, it's a whole crazy kind of vibe of creating this artificial Western world that's run by robots and artificial intelligence, and everything goes wrong, and the robots turn on the whole you know the humans that can afford to go in there and have that artificial experience in the world. But it's 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 an old story. We've seen that story many times before. But they've done a beautiful job in telling it so far, at least for the first couple of episodes I've seen. It's been amazing. I just uh, you made me think of a, a movie that was didn't get as much in, uh, attention as I think it should have, uh, and that's uh, Ex Machina. Um, and the the simple two second uh, synopsis of that is uh, an Elon Musk kind of guy, super brilliant guy, invents an artificial intelligence and brings in another guy to see if it could sort of pass the modern version of the Turing test. You know it's a machine. Can you still think of it as a person, even though you know it's a machine? And it, and the, the machine doesn't look, I mean, has like a human face on like a glass and wire body. So everything about it is telling you I'm a machine, but can I be so good at making it interacting with you that you forget that it's a machine? So there's the premise, um, and it goes to some some interesting places. Uh, it's certainly worth a watch. I, you know, on a scale of ten, I give it a seven and a half. It's not awesome, but it's one that, while I didn't think it was great while I was watching it, I can't stop thinking about it afterward. And that's been months. So that's a sign of a. There there are enjoyable movies and there are good movies, and they don't always come together. Not every good movie is enjoyable, and I think this is one of those that while it is not as enjoyable as I would like it to be, it was good enough that it's got me thinking about it you know, periodically off and on. Anytime we have the discussions, it comes to mind. So uh, check it out, Ex Machina. I'm looking that one up. That's good. Yeah, it's on Netflix. Um, it might have been a DVD. It may not actually be streaming, but it's out there. Very cool. Uh, and then one last thing that you had there, I don't know anything about, but apparently you don't like the new MacBook Pro. <laughs> Yeah, no, I don't. Um, okay, backstory. I my daughter is in college. She is like all college students. They have MacBooks. Uh, you know, if if I have my way, they'd all have Linux. But that's you know that's not the way. She's not studying software engineering, so I guess there's a reason for that. Anyway, uh, she has uh, the Apple have been a really irresponsible is that the word um yeah (laughs) we'll use that um they haven't produced a new macbook since 2014 uh in fact i think the one that she's got is a 2013 model or a 2012 anyway it's what we would all consider to be the latest macbook these machines are like three four years old and you know they saw they show their signs of age after a while well hers started creating problems and uh, crashing wouldn't boot up. You get that kind of, you know, flashing icon, where's my hard drive gone kind of thing. The stuff that we computer people would freak out about, but, you know, she reboots it, thing comes up. 
And of course, uh, you know, you live with that after a while. But one day she has to go and book in for her new classes for the next semester. And of course, there's 80,000 other kids trying to do the same thing at the same time. So she's at 6 a.m. on her computer, ready to sign up for that class. She needs to be able to get into the honors class. And she goes, press the button and the thing crashes. And, uh, you know, that was it. I'm like, okay, really? Okay, you got to get a new computer, or we got to find out what the problem is. Well, I did a little YouTube Googling, whatever you call it, to find uh, a huge tribe of people out there experiencing the same problem, and it's a cable connecting the internal hard drive to the motherboard. It's just a bad cable. We find out Apple know this is a manufactured defect, and apparently will replace it for free even if you're out of warranty. So in the end, what happened was uh, she booked in to go to the, quote, genius bar, to <laughs> say that, you know, with air quotes and, and highly cynical. And disdain. And disdain, yeah. And she eventually gets an appointment like a week later and goes in there and, you know, I tell her how to stomp her fist on the table and demand that they fix it. And lo and behold, it worked and they fixed it. And it was exactly what we said it was, a $6 bad cable. Anyway, having gone through that whole exercise, while we're waiting that week for her to go in, Apple released the MacBook Pro 2016 model. So I would normally not even look at this thing because it's not of interest to me, but I thought given the circumstances, if this fix doesn't work, I may be looking at having to replace her computer, so I'd better do some research and see what. I mean, I'm not going to buy a three-year-old computer to replace a three-year-old computer. I'm going to buy the current one. So. Anyway, I, I'm watching this MacBook Pro rollout, and they announced it, I think, on the 27th of October, something like that. And I, I don't get it, guys. I don't get it. It's the old MacBook with a slightly faster stuff and slightly thinner stuff and this stupid touch bar thing across the top of the keyboard for whatever reason, I have no idea. And that's the new MacBook. For $1,500. Okay. Uh, no, here's the worst part about it. She has a 15-inch MacBook Pro. So if I get like for like for her computer, it's $2,799 plus crap. tax. This thing is over $3,000 for a computer that might be 25% better than what she's got, and her computer's four years old. Come on, Apple. You know, we're in the computer business. We're not in the go-back business we, we're supposed to advance technology not use the same computer and stick this gimmicky little touch thing on the keyboard and then charge you twice the amount of money you paid three years ago for a machine you could have bought three years ago um so i i don't know there's been so many people on the rumor mill uh with apple saying that they've been secretly wanting to get out of the computer business they don't make anywhere near the money on these MacBooks that they, or the iMacs or whatever they call them, that they do on their iPhones and their iPads um, and probably now their, their TV and their watches and whatever else they're doing. That's where the big money is. The, the computers are a lot of work for very, very little. And at the end of the day, it's, it, their actions are speaking louder than their uh, corporate 
you know, PR releases here. They they are taking forever to release a new computer, and then when they do, they are charging a price nobody can afford other than the absolute diehard fanboys. And then the people who do need the machine look at it and go, you know what, I think I'll buy a Dell XPS. I mean, yeah. why would you buy a, a, a MacBook for three grand that is that computer? I, I don't get it. So sorry, that's my rant for the for the day. Maybe it's not my only rant, but that's, that's so I, I'm looking one. at the specs now because I haven't done. I I don't care when a new MacBook comes out because I just I don't care. But you know, for the three thousand dollars, you get a Core i five. Yeah, a Core i five. <laughs> All right. Um, you get uh, uh, sixteen gigs of RAM. Okay, that's pretty good. Or maybe it maxes out at sixteen. I'm kind I'm kind of hard to read uh, exactly what you you get there. Um, and you get, you know, the, the aluminum case, you get, uh, the Thunderbolt is gone. Um, okay. That nobody really cares about that. Um, if I'm reading this right, uh, you get the, the, the magic trackpad. Okay. Um, for three grand. Um, I, I don't get it either. I never have gotten it. I just don't, not only do I not, um, like the, oh, the, the, the way Apple as a company treats their customers. I don't like the Apple experience. And, and that's what they have hung their hat on for all these years is the Apple experience. And the Apple experience just doesn't work for me. I, I don't have anything against it. If you're an Apple person, I mean, we can still be friends, uh, but I just don't enjoy using the Apple OS. I don't enjoy the way they do things. I don't enjoy the the trackpad that scrolls down when I want it to scroll up. You know, I, I just, it's not, it's not for me. And, and, and of course, somebody right now, some Mac fan out there is telling me, well, you can change all that. Well, of course I can. But why would I want to pay three thousand dollars for something I'm going to format and put Linux on? <laughs> That's true. That's true. I've done that. I bought an old MacBook Air and put, you know, uh, Linux Mint on it, and it works fantastically well. Uh, but every time it, I, I made the mistake of trying to set it up to dual boot, just in case I need to have uh, OS X there, and every time I actually do boot into the Macintosh operating system, it comes back and it says. Oh, uh, let's install the update to the latest uh, OS X on your computer. And by the way, we're going to wipe out the petition that you put something else on because we don't know what it is and we don't like it there. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Apple. So, yeah, I'm not uh, – I, I, I look, if, if anybody out there is in the market for a laptop right now, um, now this is probably four months old, but I bought a, a Dell XPS 15 and I love that machine. Absolutely love it. It's uh, running Linux, and that thing flies. And spec for spec, uh, it's hard to find a better uh, experience, at least for me it was. But that machine top with everything, and I bought the top of the line everything, 1800 bucks, and, and I probably overpaid. Yeah. Yeah, so you can get for 14 15 16 somewhere around there, the price of the low-end MacBook, you can get like a 17-inch metal body Asus with an i7 and 8 to 12 gigs of RAM. Um, I haven't looked at these prices recently, but the last time I looked, that's a thing that you could get. Um, and so it's not, you can still get premium hardware um, for a fraction of the cost. That's going to come with Windows on it. And if you're not okay with that, there are options. But, you know, just like, you know, saying that that uh, a, a laptop comes with Windows on it is a, is a deficit, I could say the same thing, that a Mac comes with Mac OS on it, and I don't like that. So th for me, that's a deficit. I'm, it's 
you know, I'm paying for something that I don't want. And yes, you do pay for that OS. That's why it's $3,000 for essentially commodity hardware. Uh, yeah. Apple used to be specialized hardware. It's not anymore. It hasn't been for two decades. They're commodity hardware. What you're paying for is the Apple experience. And if you don't like the Apple experience, there's no reason to pay for it at all. I, I really do feel that their their computers are going to be their loss leaders in that company. And if the board of directors had their option on it, they'd dump that entire division in a heartbeat. And uh, I hate to see poor people who have relied on Macs as their entire machine and, and so many software engineers fall into that category where they use Macs to build web applications that they deploy on Linux. Uh, I just look at it and go, why don't you just write on Linux? It's right. so much easier. Yeah, and, and Mac uh, Mac developers, enthusiasts who like like Macs will will say, well, it's this, it's Linux at the core, so I can get out to all my Linux stuff or my Unix stuff. It's Unix at the core. Um, okay, but why pay the premium for that? There's just no reason for it. Um, and again, I think David Pogue said it best when the, the, the iPhone first came out, like in 2007. David Pogue, at the time, New York Times columnist, and he said, the people who buy the iPhone and the people who don't can be divided into two categories. Those for whom uh, elegance and beauty are important and those for whom it is not. If it's important to you, you buy the iPhone. If it's not... You buy, uh, at that time, it would have been a, a BlackBerry or Windows phone. Uh, and I, I, at first I read that and I was offended by that. And I was like, well, how, what do you, are you just saying I don't have any taste because I'm not an Apple lover? The more I thought about that, the more I'm like, he's entirely right. If it's important to you, if elegant form and finish and that, that seamless experience is important to you, you will pay whatever it takes. If it's not important to you, it's stupid to pay for it. It, and that's just it. And and so I've come to come to realize that he was dead on with that one. And he's one of those guys. He's a big Mac fanboy because he likes uh, to work with hardware and software that he con- considers artful and he's willing to pay the premium for it. I'm not. I'm more left brain than right brain. And so I, I really think that's what it comes down to. And Apple is trying and Google is trying to follow them, right? With their Google Home and their their Google Wi-Fi now and and all these things, they're trying to move into that artful thing because they've already got the geeks. They're not going to lose the geeks. They're now trying to get the artists. Uh, and I don't know if that's the right call, but I do understand why they're making that call. And and they're they're following suit with overpriced, underdelivered hardware. And so it seems to me that they're going down the road. They're chasing Apple at a game that Apple is failing to play well. So I, I don't understand the logic of it from a business sense, but I think the the reality is it's not a business decision. It's some former Apple execs now work at Google, and they've taken that ethos with them. There was an interview on, uh, I'm now trying to try and remember, I think it was All Things D was a mm-hmm. seminar they did a few years back uh, when Steve Jobs was alive, probably about a year or two before he, he passed away. He did a session there where he spoke about the whole concept of the iPad and the iPhone and, and what they were trying to do with that. And he did this really interesting uh, analogy where he compared things like the iPad, uh, and, and I guess we, we could also look at the iPhone in this regard now as well, as being kind of sedans on the road that everybody would use because they just have, you know, they, have a, they need a car in the garage at home and it gets them to work or it takes kids to school and it's a 
it's a functional thing, but you you love your car, you fall in love with it, you 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 get that feeling of being behind the wheel and all the things that you know car lovers get into. That was where they wanted with the iPhone and the iPad. And he saw the computers, the MacBooks, the desktop computers and whatever, as the semi-trailers on the road, the utilitarian vehicles that did work and produced things that people who were more creators of things would use and people who were the average you know, residential car owner were more the consumers of things. And they skewed their technology so that the iPhone and the iPad skewed to the consumer and that the computers skewed to the creator or the utilitarian user. And when, when you consider it that way, one thing that he did state was that the ratio between people who create and people who consume is about one, uh, one to five. So if that's what they're thinking in terms of Apple, he's saying, would we want to put a, a business that costs us so much money to produce for one, uh, like a, a 20%, versus put all of our uh, focus on the consumer, on the iPad, the iPhone, the iConsumer device, which is you know 80% of the market, we'd be stupid to be spending so much time with such a small portion when we can be focusing on the consumer. And I think that that holds true through the ethos of Apple to this day. And I think that if you're vested in being a creator and requiring a utilitarian solution and you go to Apple to get it, you will become disappointed at some point. Yeah. And, and to, to piggyback on that, I drive uh, a Dodge Ram pickup truck. And and it's affordable and it's functional and I like the experience. Were I a multimillionaire, I would probably never buy a Bentley. I don't that that doesn't appeal to me. That excessive, um, uh, super engineered, beautiful, and using rare woods uh, just because you can doesn't appeal to me. It doesn't. It's not a it's not a financial calculation. It's who I am, and I'm a guy who's going to drive a cheap pickup. Even if I have money, you know, like Sam Walton, the the guy who started Walmart, died a multi-millionaire and drove around in his 30-year-old pickup. Not because he couldn't afford it, because he was a pickup guy. And so I'm I'm a a Linux guy because I'm a pickup guy. I'm Mm -hmm. not a Mac guy. And that's not an insult to anybody. It's not an insult to Apple or to to Linux. It's just who, who I am, you know, and Rick in the chat room is saying that, that the, the days of, of David Pogue saying the beauty is, is, is Apple. Uh, he said, those are long gone. Most new phones look really good. Yes, because they followed Apple. They chased that rabbit. And so now there is absolute parity uh, in most cases, which is why we're looking at this new MacBook and saying, I don't get it. Um, yeah, it's pretty, but the, the Dells are pretty and the Acers, Asus is, are pretty, not the Acers. They still don't make a pretty one. But there are other people that make pretty, so you can still get pretty and functional. Um, so that gap has narrowed to the point where I don't know that, as I was saying earlier, I don't know that that business is a business anymore. I don't know that it's, it's right to, to sell premium devices in terms of electronics anymore. I don't know that the Brookstones of the world, um, can continue to sell their overpriced gadgets in a world where underpriced gadgets are just, you know, 95% as good. So now the only 5% is just pure snobbery. And the only way you can can account for it is snobbery, and you know there's there's certain amount of snobbery that's okay. I I deserve 
a McLaren F1 because I'm a millionaire and I can afford it. I get that. I'm not going to argue with you for that. But I'm a guy that even even should I uh, win a, a multi-hundred million dollar lotto, I'm, I'm going to get a new truck and I'm still going to drive a truck because that's who I am. And it's not about um, because I can't afford it. And I think that too many times, I think Android, particularly originally with the like the G1, remember that piece of garbage? Mm-hmm. Um, they were all about value engineering. And and so they went for cheap instead of functional. And I think that now all the phones have reached a parody, a parody of functional. Whereas, you know, you got Samsung. By the way, don't use your Note 7. If you've still got one, just just don't. Get rid of it. But you got Samsung who love their Samsung phones. And they don't even think of it as Android. It's not an Android phone. It's a Samsung phone. And they are brand loyal to Samsung. And and so the there is parody there. It has worked. There are people who love their Samsung as much as Apple people love their Apple. Um, so you can't continue to um, distinguish yourself just because your prices are higher. And I think that's that's what this new MacBook says to me, that Apple, the only thing they still have going for them is high prices. And when you look at somebody, it's it's you know it's a it's a it's a d bag detector. You see somebody carrying that twenty eight hundred dollar laptop, you know they're a d bag right there. You know, got it, nailed you. You're you're one of those. You know what's interesting? Go into a Starbucks. And look at all the people sitting around using a, a laptop and count the percentage number of Macs. It's so high. It depends on the e- economic area you're in. Like if you're in New York City, you'll see tons of them. Um, in Scottsdale, Arizona, which is fairly upmarket, tons of them. Uh, but none of those people are doing anything that's sitting there on Facebook reading the posts. They could be doing that on their phone. Uh, and but they have to have the MacBook. It's like a style thing. It's like a, it's like MacBooks and Botox or something. I don't know. Well, you've sca- you've skewed your sample just by saying people sitting in Starbucks. So Starbucks is a premium brand, uh, for one. But also the people who sit in Starbucks means they have leisure time. The people who who drive through Starbucks are on their way to work. So you you've skewed your sample by looking at only affluent people with spare time. True. Those people buy MacBooks. Yeah, they do. I guess and if you're one of those people, great. I'm not. I'm the no. guy who's going to get a, a coffee on the way to work. Yeah. You know, I, I'm going to stop at Dunkin'. You know, I'm not going to go to Starbucks. Um, anyway, <laughs> that was a weird uh, discussion that I wasn't planning to go down, but I thought it was interesting. And and this one, we're just going to do one bit of news again. Seth isn't with us. He does all the work on the news. And I just got to do this one because it's too weird not to. Um, from the New York per- Post, I don't even know that I need to read the story. I think I may just read the headline and leave it at that. Woman badly burned after farting during surgery. All right, folks, thanks for hanging out with us. Um, so you read the article and she's having some sort of laser ablation uh, procedure on her cervix. Um, and during the process, she passed gas. The gas it was ignited by the laser, and it gave her severe burns. They don't say how much, but severe burns over uh, much of her body. Uh, it says, quote, uh, she was left screaming in agony after the fire burned most of her body, waist, and legs, according to the report. That's a lot of gas. <laughs> I'm just saying, that's a lot of gas. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I didn't even know what to say to that. <laughs> I, I got two words for you. 
This was in Tokyo. We had two for, two words for you, Tokyo surgeons. Shop vac. Would have saved this one. <laughs> Shop vac. <laughs> Oh, no, man. no commentary from Miles on that one. I, I, I'm with, I'm speechless. I really. Am. <laughs> um, there's so many ways I could go with that if I wanted to truly chase that rabbit, I, but I'm not just, I'm, I'm not going to. Apparently, this happened back in April, but it was just now released for obvious reasons. I mean, who <laughs> wants to run out and say we sort of killed a woman with farts? Um, so uh, this came out as as a part of uh, uh, another report, but. That's a shop vac. That's all I'm saying. I'm from now on. Anytime I go into surgery, I'm going to tell the guys you you need a shop vac in that general area. I'm just saying, because um, you can't control what you're doing under sedation. You know, just saying. Uh. Shouldn't have had the burrito. <laughs> really. And uh, because Seth isn't here, and because this won't happen again, since it won't be this week in history until. Next week, I'm going to say that his uh, this week in history was the Vim text editor turns 25 years old. Oh, I love Vi. I can't, I can't even think of saying Vim anymore because I was I grew up on Vi. Well, Vi is Vim improved, improved, right? Or uh, v, Vim imi- the, Vi imitation. That's what. Yeah, it was. it's a predecessor to Vim, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So Vi Vi was Vi was uh, short for viewer V I, mm-hmm. um, and then Vim was supposed to be. Uh, it says here in this thing on November second, nineteen ninety one. After three years in development, the they released the first version of V I imitation or the Vim editor. Uh, I seem to recall when I was first introduced to Vim back in the day, it was called Vi Improved. So uh, they must have changed the thing. Uh, personally. Uh, I'm a G edit guy. I don't like Vim or Emacs or Vi. Uh, open that sucker, right click and edit, um, and go on with your life. I I used to write C code in the early eighties and, uh, you know, the market for that sort of thing was always these uh, companies that were on the verge. They, they weren't quite into the personal computer thing because that was all just sort of starting to emerge. And they had their mini computers, their digital deck machines and some HP machines and things like that. And, and there was a market out there to write software for those guys. So I, I put my hat in the ring and started writing that sort of thing. Um, and I remember to get involved with the mini computers, you know, you couldn't buy one because I was, I was a kid. I couldn't afford that. But what you could get is you could get a CPM machine. So you could get a, an Osborne or a K-Pro or an S100 type machine or something like that. And CPM came with VI or VI. And so I, I learned that it was so hard to learn that back then because everything was this weird cryptic keyboard combination for going to the next version of a search and replace. And it was all really a horribly complicated and obtruse, uh, but, you know, so was typing. I mean, typing's <laughs> not a human natural thing we do, right? So if you are willing to drink the Kool-Aid and go down there and learn how to type, you probably had a threshold of pain that was high enough for you to learn Vi. And I was one of those guys, and so I learned it and then you know transitioned into Xenix and Unix and, and and all that sort of thing as and it carried through with me 
everywhere. And to this very day, it just is a natural experience. So you put me in front of a Linux machine, I immediately hit Vi and I'm in there going crazy. And it's there. It's on everything. It is. I've written probably millions of lines of C code in that thing. And it's just, it's ingrained in your personality. And so, you know, I know there's a lot of people out there who have that kind of religious Vi versus Emacs kind of thing. Um, I don't see it so much that way. I'm, it's just it's just like one of those, it's like getting a tattoo. Once you've got Vi, you can't get rid of it. You know, you're stuck with it and either you regret the day that you picked it up and then you're walking around for the rest of your life stuck in the world of Vi or you embrace it and move on and, and pretend you're a hell's angel on the weekend. Yeah. So the, the, there are times when I must use Vi because I'm in a place where there is no graphical environment when I'm, when I'm dealing with my server. Often, though, when I'm dealing with my server, I'm SSH'd into that server, and I have a full GUI, and I can, I can do everything I need to do. So I, stop, stop writing that email right now because you're just wrong. You're just wrong. <laughs> it's very rare that you have to, to be on a command line with no other tools available. It happens on a crashed machine, but it doesn't happen with remote administration ever because you're remoting in from a machine that has the full suite and you can access it. So just get off of that high horse. But there are times when, you know, the system is completely crashed or, you know, uh, uh, the, the GUI uh, GNOME or, or KDE is, is gone down and I've got to fix it that I need to use Vi. And so I always have two things. I have the Vi console and I have a Google search for Vi commands, either on my phone or on a separate computer because it, it never has stuck to me. And I've done, again, I've done a lot of work with it over the years, but never, you know, uh, like you said, done the work. I never spent a week using nothing but Vi or Vim or any of those and learning to use it. I only use it when I need it. And when I need it, I forget like simple things like, how do you save a file? Couldn't tell you. Don't know. You, you put me on a rack right now and said, if you don't tell me how to save a file, I'm going to rip your arms off. Bye-bye arms. I got nothing. Colon W. Okay. There you go. <laughs> Didn't know. Control K. That's what is this, one of those does that. Control KS. That's not uh, Vi. That's something else. That may yeah, be no, that I don't even know. Like See? Word star. Yeah. <laughs> I got nothing. Uh, so I, I, I know how to do it, or at least I know how to find the information. That's the key knowing where to find the information. And yeah, you drop me down in a completely dead, um, air-gapped environment. Nope, can't do it. Sorry. I'm just not the guy for that job. Find somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, you can't, okay, in its defense, though, almost every single machine that you walk into, with the exception of a Windows box, you can type Vi and it works. Um, And so it's transportable knowledge, but it's, in the same way that I guess gonorrhea is transportable, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, nice. Oh, man. Yeah. Rick says life's too short to learn Vi. I, I'm <laughs> with you on that. Um, okay, I think that's it. We're going to wrap it up right there. Um, uh, this has uh, still been more than an hour of content, even without the Seth Meister here to, uh, to regale us with the news. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, Miles, I got to say, I'm getting positive feedback on you. Uh, oh, that's people, a good thing. People seem to like you. I, I like you. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to fire you yet. Your, your 90-day uh, probationary <laughs> period will be extended for at least another 90 days. So, Thank you, um, sir. May I have another? <laughs>
Um, and I may even uh, give you a 50% raise in pay. Um, All righty. Yeah. What's, uh, what's 0.5 times zero? Um, anyway. Yeah. So about that, if you want me to pay Miles, you have to pay me. That's the way it works. You can do that at uh, elementopi.com. You can click the, uh, the tip jar. You can go to patreon.com slash elementopi. You can uh, do that. You can send me some Bitcoin. Um, but w- one of the easiest ways to do it coming up in this Christmas season is do all of your shopping through elementopi.com slash Amazon. N- no difference to you. The only thing you'll see is a, is a, a hashtag in your browser window. That's the only difference you'll see. Costs are the same. Everything's the same. Same great Amazon Prime service. But if you buy all of your stuff, everything that you're going to buy from Amazon through that link, uh, I'll have some money to throw at, at Miles and Seth. Uh, <laughs> that's actually, um, we, we don't make a lot of money. It's, it's seriously in the range of 1% to 2% per purchases. Yeah, uh, we're not but, likely to buy MacBooks. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I could buy him uh, a Starbucks. That could happen. Whoa. Um, yeah, you'll have to. You won't have time to sit on your MacBook and drink it. You'll have to drive through <laughs> on the way to work. Um, but it'll be there. So I, I don't like begging for money, but I also often notice it's a very simple thing. Uh, uh, I had a friend who worked in radio, and and um, they were a, a listener supported radio station. And he said it was a really simple thing. When I say the phone number, people call. When I tell them to to give money, they give money. When I don't, they don't. A hundred percent of the time that I don't tell them to give money, they don't. So. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna add this little begging section, maybe not to every show, but to some of them. Um, really simple. If you like the show, pay for it, um, and that would be a wonderful thing. So that's all I have to say about that. Uh, also, if you want to let us know what you think, uh, which reality are you in? Are you in a reality where uh, Trump and and Clinton are not the presidential candidates? Let me know, and uh, I'll see if I can jump into that reality because that would be awesome. Yeah, um, yeah, I'm, I'm there too. Yeah, you can do that by going to elementopi.com, click the contact us button at the top of the page. Uh, that's the best way to contact us. It sends a, a, a formatted uh, email to my inbox that gets priority. I read you over everything else. Um, but if you want, you can send an email to uh, uh, geekrant at elementopi.com and uh, that, that will get to me as well. Or you can call 559-IMOP and uh, leave us a voicemail on our Google Voice line. And we'll probably even play it right here on the show. So let us know what you think. Uh, we uh, we like uh, we like doing this show, and we we're glad that you like listening to it. And uh, the best thing that you could do for us is to tell other people about it. If you like it, tell them tell them why, and uh, share it, tweet it, talk to you know those those little tweets. So and so listen to Geek Rant episode two fifty eight. That's cool. That's useful. But it's going to be much more productive if you actually pull that earplug out of your ear for a few minutes and tell your coworker, "Hey, you know about podcasts." That's going to go a lot farther than that 140-character tweet. John Smith just listened to episode 248 of Geek Rant. So, <laughs> but we'll take the tweet, too. We'll yeah, do both. Well. Yep. Right. Oh, and, and wh- wh- while I'm talking about do both, this is uh, No Shave November. The, the whole point of No Shave November is you take the money that you would have spent shaving and you donate it to cancer research. So grow your beard, but also donate. Just saying. Don't just use it as an excuse to let your peach fuzz go ungroomed. Actually donate. So that's all I have to say about that. Miles, any last words from you? No, neckbeards get their uh, best month in November, you know. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> and you can say, hey, cancer. And yeah, people have to just let you. <laughs> you. You want cancer to continue? I can't. If I shave, 
people will die of cancer. Yeah. Um, I don't really think that's how it works. Um, <laughs> like breast cancer awareness month in October, you know, I like boobs as much as anyone else, but is there anybody who's not aware that breast cancer is a thing? I think that's done. You know, breast cancer awareness is a thing. It's it, we achievement unlocked. It's time to move on to something else. Yep. Anyway. Yep. All right. See you, everybody. We'll see you next week because that's it for this episode of The Geek Rant. Show.